pastor here at Hope Community Church. Um, it's, a, it's a good day. Uh, feels like fall is working its way here, which fortunately means another season's right behind it. Hopefully this year it will be a long season. But today is a good day also because, well, it's, it's the first Sunday of the football season. And I know maybe for you as Packers, Vikings, Bears fans, not as exciting as for Patriot fans, um, especially in light of recent news. Um, but it's, it's a good day. And, and on top of that, it's our anniversary. So it's Laura's and I's 12th, 12th anniversary. So a lot going on. Busy day for the uh, Killip household today. So, But today we are here not to talk about football or how long my wife and I have been married. We're here to talk about Christ and his word and him crucified. And last week we were in uh, Matthew chapter 21, and this week we're in the second half of that chapter. And we talked last week about how Jesus staged his entrance into Jerusalem on purpose, that he set the stage in order to cause the people to ponder who he is and who he was to them. And, And this week we start seeing Jesus unapologetically showing who the Messiah is who the Messiah actually is, um, in spite of their uh, preconceived uh, notions of who the Messiah is. And we see that one through his words, his teachings, as well as through his actions, especially uh, this week in the temple court. So today's passage is Matthew 21, 12 through 22. If you want to go ahead and turn there now or open it up on your Bible app, if you need a Bible, we have them uh, below the seats around you. Again, that's uh, Matthew 21, 12 through 22. Uh, And in this passage, we're going to see Jesus passing judgment, one on the temple because of its hypocrisy, and then going to a fig tree and using the fig tree as an object lesson to judge the people, the nation of Israel, for their religious hypocrisy. And as we go through this text, I want us to consider how hypocrisy may exist today within the church and within our own lives, while seeing how the church and its people ought to act. Uh, But before we read the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, be with us this morning. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy and grace that has allowed us to wake up once again and to enjoy your mercies anew. Be with us as we study your word and we hear what your spirit has to say. Help us humbly submit ourselves to your teaching and to your leading. Bring forth the idols in our lives. Convict us of our sins And help us know the joy and the forgiveness that exists by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And the freedom that exists from those sins and from the power of sin by your son crucified. I thank you for the people here today who have come, who have given their time to hear your word. And those who have given their time to serve your church and your kingdom here at Hope. I ask that you will continue to bless those who willfully give themselves, not just only on Sunday mornings, but all days of the week. Who open up their homes to do your work. I ask that as we read this text, Father, that you ultimately would be glorified and that the message that you want us to, us to hear and the message you want me to speak is the one that is spoken and heard this morning. Ask all these things, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's go ahead and read Matthew 21, 12 through 22. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. So let's look at this judgment on the temple for its hypocrisy first. Now, we have to understand this setting here. Remember, this is the week that leads up to Passover. It's the final week of the life of Jesus before he is resurrected. So Jerusalem is hopping. It is buzzing with people. Jews from all over, from the nations, from the uh, diaspora have come back to Jerusalem. They have done their pilgrimage to make sacrifices at the temple. And this also includes Gentiles and and foreigners, people who just want to see what happens here. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about how there there would be about 256,000 500 lambs that would be taken into the city this week for sacrifices. And only one lamb was needed for a household. So if we take that number, one lamb per household, and understand that many of these households are crowded with people, and that not just the people that are in the city, but all the people that surround Jerusalem, there are many millions of people here at this time. So when Jesus walks into the temple courts, It's packed. It's like a bazaar. It is busy. It is full of all kinds of activity. Now, when we look at the temple court of the Gentiles court, we have to understand it's it's actually bigger than the temple itself. The temple itself is rather small. You have the Holy of Holies, and then you have the rest of the temple, then you have um, the other courts, and then the Gentile court is the further out court. It's like a concentric circle, so to speak. And the further out you went, the less sacred that space was. So the temple, the core of the Gentiles, was an area where foreigners could go into. That is where they can begin the process of knowing and experiencing the God of the Jews. And so it wasn't, the space wasn't considered all that sacred. But yet, all of this that's going on right now, it displeases Jesus. And, and why does it displease Jesus? Well, what the Jews intended to be good initially, they have abused and they have corrupted They're overcharging the people. See, the tables and the people that Jesus is throwing out, and you got to think about it, these stalls that these people have set up, these booths, probably were set up a couple weeks in advance for this momentous week. And now Jesus is just taking it and just throwing it all out, turning it all over, making room, making space for the people that need to be there. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But these stalls are providing a need for people. See, if you come a long way, there's a good chance you're not going to bring a lamb with you. 
or whatever your sacrifice, uh, sacrificial animal is going to be. Maybe it's going to be pigeons. Because the animal has to be proved by a priest. And quite often, priests wouldn't approve an animal that you brought. But the animals they did approve were the animals that were sold at a higher than, higher than market pr- price value in the temple court. So you wouldn't, if you traveled several days or weeks to come here, why bring an animal that there's a good chance the priest isn't going to approve of it? You're just going to have to pay a higher price to buy that priest-approved, that kosher animal, so to speak, buy it for the sacrifice. And then on top of it, as one commentator talks about, the money changers, right, because we have different currencies going on here, different currencies. So the money changers charge 6% for changing money. And if the coin that they're changing was greater than the required half shekel, they charge an additional 6% for giving change. So just for changing money, the total charge was about half a day's wage, which was more than what they were supposed to be charging. So while these services originally were good in their attempts for providing a a way for for people to, to become right with God, over time they became abused, they became corrupted. And then it's these practices that became the focus of the temple court. The focus of the temple court was selling and changing money and and not for it to be for prayer or finding ways to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. In fact, because it's so busy in there, the the lame and and the blind couldn't. There's no space for them. There wasn't a place for them because you weren't doing business. You had no business in the temple court. But this is the thing. Let's look at the statement in verse 13 by Jesus. Jesus said, it's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. And then he goes on, he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11, where he says, But you make it a den of robbers. What is a den of robbers? Robbers don't rob their own den, right? You don't rob the place where you lay your head. A, a den is a place of refuge. It's your safe place. It's your security. It's where you rest. So what does Jesus mean by you make it a den of robbers? See, his main contention isn't actually the overcharging or taking advantage. That is part of it. Yes, that is a symptom. That is an issue, but that's not the main issue Jesus is concerned with. And, and in order for us to help what the real issue is, what the actual tumor is, what the actual cancer is, let's go to Jeremiah. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, Jeremiah 7, and we're going to read 1 through 11. And we'll end with a verse that Jesus quotes. And this is going to give us an idea of, of what's meant by den of robbers. Exactly what are these people robbing? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? 
and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. See, the robbery that was going on was how these people were living. They weren't living as they were called to live. They would come to the temple thinking it was a safe place. They would buy their animal sacrifice, make the sacrifice, and think we are delivered. We are saved from God's wrath. And then they go out the door. They go into the world, and they live like the world, thus robbing God of the obedience he commands of his people. And as such, they lived like hypocrites. See, how the people of Israel lived ultimately poured over into their religious life. The activity of the temple is formed by how the people lived outside of the temple. How they treated the outsiders and the poor. That all was reflected in the temple courts. They weren't making it easy for the sojourner to come to make sacrifices or for the poor. They were charging for two pigeons, which is the, the, the poor person's sacrifice, much more than what a poor person could afford. See, the activity of the church, even today, is formed by the activity of our daily lives. If we do not desire to read God's word at home, we're not going to want to hear God's word here at church, or any of it. Perhaps we want the sermon just to be uplifting and entertaining, but void of God's word, because outside of church, we don't care for it. If we don't seek rebuke and correction from his word daily, but only positive encouragement, we're not going to want to hear sermons that do the same. We're going to want sermons that will just, again, encourage us whatever we desire outside of Sunday mornings. We're most definitely not going to desire the practice of church discipline if we don't expect God to discipline us in our own lives. If we don't worship God or walk in obedience outside of these walls, it's not going to matter how we worship, what we worship, or how we conduct worship within the church. If we don't open up our homes or seek opportunities to connect with strangers outside of the church, when they come into the church, we're not going to be prepared, ready, or even willing to welcome them here as we ought to. See, the ungodly practices of these people became evident in how they did oppress the sojourner, the widow, in these matters within the walls of the temple court. The hypocrisy of Israel had manifested itself in the one place it had no place being in the one place that it should have been forbidden, and God does not allow it. So the question is, what is the real purpose of the temple? The real purpose, and that we get this from Isaiah 56, 7, the first part of Jesus' verse there in 13. It's to be a house of prayer. It's actually to be a place for outsiders. See, this is interesting because the Jews, they, they were calling Jesus Hosanna, right? Son of, of David, the Messiah. And, and the idea of the Jews in the first century is that the Messiah was going to come to Israel and cleanse it from all uncleanliness. And that uncleanliness include foreigners, Gentiles. So if anything, they would expect him to come into the temple, uh, the, the Gentile court, and get rid of all the Gentiles. And get rid of all those who are sick and lame, who are unclean in the eyes of the Jewish society and get rid of them. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he gets rid of all the Jewish people trying to make money, trying to sell sacrifices. He gets rid of them and he makes room for those whom the Jews thought shouldn't be there to begin with. And he has them come in, the blind and lame, they come in and then he heals them within the temple courts. And he meets their needs physically 
but most importantly, spiritually. And we have to understand that. Remember, Matthew in his gospel has established, and we've talked about this many times, that the healings of Jesus, the purpose he shows them is Jesus heals to show that he has authority from the Father, one in his teachings, and as we read about in Matthew 9, to forgive sins. But ultimately, the healings are not what the ministry of Jesus was about. Many people today think that's you don't have a ministry of healing, you don't have a ministry of Jesus, but as Luke tells us in 4.43, the ministry of Jesus, the main purpose of Jesus' coming was to preach the good news of the kingdom. The healing was a byproduct of that. The healing was, again, just a sign of his authority and an affirmation of who he is. And when we speak about the authority of Jesus, uh, we're actually going to see next week, we're going to deal with the authority of Jesus being questioned by the religious elite. Now, of course, by welcoming the outsiders, those of the establishment, they are uncomfortable. They're skeptical. They're critical. And the fact that these kids are shouting what was shouted the day before, Hosanna, son of David. Remember last week we talked about this. They're pretty much saying, he's the next king. Here's our king. Here he is. And we'd wonder, well, where are the authorities? Shouldn't this be some concern? And we're like, well, they're probably waiting to see if the crowd dissipates. Well, this is another day. And they're, again, shouting. And this time it's coming from kids. And, and perhaps these religious leaders and the authorities are concerned. Kids shouting in the temple courts really don't need this noise, but they're probably concerned about what they're saying too. But notice the response that Jesus gives them. He doesn't attack them personally. He doesn't go after them. He doesn't call them cowards. He uses scripture. Anytime he's questioned, anytime his authority is questioned, anytime his ministry is questioned or the fruit of it is questioned, he never goes after the critic or the cynic by attacking them. He never makes it personal. He always uses scripture. Now, the scripture he used might sting a bit to the person who hears it, but he's always using the authority of the word of God to defend what he is doing. And I think this is a good sign of anyone who is a teacher of God that how they respond to criticism is important. If if they don't use scripture, if when you criticize their ministry or, or why they're doing it, and they respond by personal attacks or they make stuff up and they don't go to scripture, that, that is a sign to be wary of them. You can just go on Twitter and, and just follow some popular teachers' Twitter feeds and you will see what I mean. It won't take you long to find how some people respond to criticism and how unbiblical it can be. But anytime somebody comes to our ministry or your ministry and says, well, why are you doing this? Or they criticize it. Use scripture. Talk about why it works within the kingdom, within the authority of God. Be like Jesus in this respect. And ultimately, if we can't justify what we are doing within the church, if we can't justify the ministry that we are a part of by connecting it to scripture or who God is, you have to ask yourself, well, why am I doing it? And perhaps that happens, and then you just think, oh, you know, that's a good point. Maybe we shouldn't be doing it. If we can't connect it to his word and to Christ crucified, why are we doing it? And this is why here I hope we, we can sit, all the things that we do, we, can, we ask that question. Why are we doing it? Why do our children ministries exist? Why do we do coffee? It's coffee. Why do we purchase that? Well, Bella Goose is a kingdom ministry. It provides a, it provides a ministry to uh, 
human trafficking victims to sex trafficking victims to provide job, job training and it gets them connected with the gospel. So it, we, we bless another ministry by providing it. And when you provide money for that, it allows us to make the purchase of that premium coffee um, and that profit they use. And we use any money above that to go towards uh, the deacon's fund, which blesses other people in need. So if our answer does not involve glorifying God through the proclamation and praise of his son, Jesus Christ, then we ultimately should let it go. And we should be fine with that. It, it might hurt if it's something special to you. But we have to deny ourselves, follow him, and take up our cross. He is first in all things. But it's not just about the temple. And it's not just about this building. The church is more than a building. In fact, the building isn't the church. The building is a tool that is used by the church. And the church are, the church is, are the people. And it's the people of Israel that Jesus judges next. It's not the temple itself that God gets mad at. When you read in Ezekiel, when the Spirit leaves the temple in Ezekiel 10, it's because of the actions of the people. It's not because the, the temple is lacking, but it's because of the hearts of the people of Israel. They weren't with him. So Jesus, now he moves on. He's going to use a fig tree here to judge the hypocrisy of the people of Israel. Now, what is going on here? If you've read this, Pat, well, we did read it this morning, but if you've looked at it and studied it, it might be kind of confusing. Why did Jesus judge a fig tree? Why did he cause the fig tree to die simply because it had no fruit? Was he having a hangry episode? Was he allowing his hunger to get to him? Well, clearly not. I mean, something else must be going on because we've seen Jesus fast for 40 days, right? He can go without food without getting angry. But why this particular morning does he curse a fig tree? See, the fig tree does have green leaves on it. And if it has green leaves on it, that's typically indicative it's bearing fruit. Typically, but not always. And in Mark chapter 11, on his account of this event, he talks about how it wasn't the season for the fruit. And so Jesus should have been, probably was, well aware that, hey, this tree looks like it has fruit, but it's not the season of fruit. But yet he curses it, and he causes it to wither almost immediately. So why? Well, it's an object lesson for the disciples. It's an object lesson for us. See, the fig tree imagery can be connected to the nation of Israel uh, through texts in the Old Testament, such as Micah. Uh, and we're going to read Micah 7, 1 through 6. Um, in verse 1, Micah says, I am depressed indeed. It's as if the summer fruit has been gathered. And the grapes have been harvested. There is no grape cluster to eat, no fresh figs that I crave so much. In this first verse, Micah is lamenting the sin of Judah. In the first verse, he's using imagery to talk about this. But he will go on and he gives an explicit description of the fruit, of the kind of fruit that's lacking in the land in verses 2 through 6. Faithful men have disappeared from the land. There are no godly men left. They all wait in ambush so they can shed blood. They hunt their own brother with a net. They are determined to be experts at doing evil. Government officials and judges take bribes. Prominent men make demands, and they all do what is necessary to satisfy them. The best of them is like a thorn. The most godly among them are more dangerous than a row of thorn bushes. The day you try to avoid by posting watchmen your appointed time of punishment, is on the way, and then you will experience confusion. Do not rely on a friend. 
Do not trust a companion. Don't be sure secrets with the one who lies in your arms. For a son thinks his father is a fool. A daughter challenges her mother. And a daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are his own servants. And then another verse, Jeremiah 8.13, at the end of a passage that's similar, that speaks about the consequences for willfully, willfully disregarding the instructions and the teachings of God and doing things as they see fit. Jeremiah writes, I will take away their harvest, says the Lord. There will be no grapes on their vines. There will be no figs on their fig trees. Even the leaves on their trees will wither. The crops that I gave them will be taken away. See, the fig tree was fruitful in appearance, appearance, but ultimately it was barren, spiritually barren. Such was the nation of Israel. The temple was beautiful. It was impressive. It was attractive. And you could tell because people were drawn to it. Just like the green leaves on the fig tree drew Jesus to it, but upon closer, closer inspection, the temple was spiritually barren. It had no fruit that it was supposed to have. The temple was lacking because the people themselves were lacking. The activity of the people's daily lives, as we spoke about, formed the activity of the temple. A profession of faith with their mouths, but a profession absence in practice. The tree professed, I have fruits, but it had no fruits. The temple professed it had fruit, but it had no fruit. The people were lacking. And this is a problem with historical roots for the nation of Israel. Again, Old Testament, Ezekiel, these, these prophets, if you've never read the prophets, read them. Uh, the condemnation that God brings against hypocrisy and those who think that they can profess his name and live another way, he has strong language for them. But again, Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 32. But as for you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, your people who are talking about you by the walls and out the doors of the houses say to one another, Come hear the word that comes from the Lord. They come to you in crowds, and they sit in front of you as many people. They hear your words, but do not obey obey them. For they talk lustfully, and their heart is set on their own advantage. Realize that to them you are like a central song, a beautiful voice, and skilled musician. They hear your words, but they do not obey them. Again, how we live, what we focus on during the week, forms our expectations of the church, as we spoke about earlier. It also forms the fruit, or the lack of fruit, that the church will have. If we are not careful, though we might be faithful to the church, yet we are not faithful to God, then we are just like these hypocrites of Israel. We are just like this fig tree. We praise God for what he has provided for us here. We praise him for all the good things in our lives. But the question is, do we obey him? Do we, like the people in Ezekiel, tell people, hey, come to our church. Hear what has to be said. And then out Monday morning or Saturday night, we clearly don't hear what has to be said. Are we like the fig tree, fruitful in appearance, but spiritually barren? We come to church faithfully, we serve in ministry faithfully, but the way we live at home is divorced from that reality. It's like being married, but you sleep with your spouse one night a week, and the other six nights a week, you sleep with a different person. Think about that. Would that be considered a marriage? 
Would that even be considered being faithful? Of course not. But yet for many within the church, this is exactly how we treat God. We give him Sunday, sometimes not even Sunday, sometimes not even just a couple hours on Sunday. But we might give them Sunday. We walk out thinking we are saved, we are delivered, and then we live and we sleep with the world on Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so forth. And then Sunday morning, we wake up and we're like, oh yeah, I, I better go spend some time with my beloved. Is that faithful? And when we read, when you read the Old Testament, like Hosea, they, they, adultery is the image that God uses to talk about hypocrisy and the people of Israel and those who would call on his name but yet dance with the world the rest of the week. What we watch, what we listen to, how we spend our time, that's how we know if we're really listening to what's being said on Sunday morning, if we're really listening or seeing, what, understanding what we are reading day to day. What we pour into our lives, what we allow ourselves to be exposed to is an indication on whether or not we are followers of Christ. If your assurance of salvation is rooted in your involvement with the church, you have no assur- assurance. Our assurance is not rooted in the works of the church. These people were heavily involved. They were providing a service for the church, and Jesus judged them for it, called them hypocrites for it. Hypocrites do not inherit the kingdom. In fact, if you are putting your faith in how you serve the church and not in Christ alone, you are just like these people. If your life is not a reflection of that life that is united with Christ, that's united through baptism, in his death, in his resurrection, having that Holy Spirit within you, giving you a new life, being born again, if it's not connected that way, and you don't have that assurance, which is known by being obedient to his commands, as First John tells us, then you have no assurance at all. See, God, being who he is, deserves our worship, not just one day a week, but every day and every moment. In fact, as how we live our lives is an act of worship. It's either going to be worthy worship or it's not going to be worthy worship. And as we live our lives as acts of worship, we inherently engage in ministry to those around us. You cannot worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit with your day-to-day life without ministering to others. It's, it's actually a beautiful thing that as you fill your life up with the good news of the gospel, it will overflow into the lives of others. And if you're not ministering to others, to your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, you're not worshiping God. You're robbing him of the glory that's due to him. He is to be proclaimed to all. So the final question, what is needed? What can help us with this hypocrisy, with this issue? How can we walk as Jesus wants us to, and the answer is rather obvious, and it's in the last part of the passage. Faith is needed, specifically faith in Christ. And they, but we have to ask ourselves, what kind of faith is this? Jesus says, if you have faith without doubt, you can send mountains into the sea. You can cause the fig tree to weather. And then we've heard this expression about mountains being tossed in the sea a few times already. It's an idiom. It's a proverbial expression to talk about problems and challenges in our lives that we can overcome by proper faith. Jesus isn't teaching us how we can reshape or alter the topography of the world. I think that would come in rather handy in dealing with natural disasters and hurricanes, but that's not what he's teaching. 
It's about how we can overcome the challenges in our lives. But to do this, we must have faith, and faith that has no doubt. And when we ask ourselves, what is this faith exactly, James helps us. In James 1, and this is uh, the brother of Jesus, uh, half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith after Jesus' ministry, James 1 through 6, 6 through 7 writes, But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. This idea of being double-minded and having doubt is the idea of trusting God one moment, but then living as the world wants you to live, or then going back to the world once God has delivered you from whatever situation you needed his wisdom for, then you go back to the ways of the world, which probably got you in the situation to begin with. You cannot have that kind of faith. It will not work. That's the faith of the people of the temple who were giving the sacrifice, thinking that they were saved, and then going out with the rest of the world. This faith trusts God above all in all things that they do, in all days of the week, in all weeks of the year. And we know we have this faith by how we live outside of these walls. It's easy to come in here, put on a show, put on that mask, and pretend to be one of us. Right? That pretending to be something that you're not, that is the basic definition of being a hypocrite. You come in here, you pretend to be a child of God, but then you go out there and it's clear you are no child of God. That kind of faith will not allow you to move mountains or cause leaves on a tree to wither. We have this faith when we live in obedience, when we walk as he calls us to despite the struggles, because they're going to come. Outside of these walls, they will come despite the trials, despite what the world teaches, and despite the failures that we have in our own lives. See, hypocrites don't live this way. They give in. They throw their hands up. Temptation comes. All right, I'm all yours, temptation. They walk right into it. They don't fight it. They don't desire to be obedient. The children of God will desire to be obedient. It doesn't mean that you will always be obedient. You will fail. You will stumble. But the desire is there. And you will mourn and weep when you don't succeed in that, when you do give in to temptation. Again, as it always does in Matthew, starting back in the Sermon on the Mount, it comes to the heart. Is it our heart's desire to be obedient sons and daughters of the Father? And if so, do our lives reflect this? Do you trust his word? When God says through Paul in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no trial, no trial, no temptation has overtaken you that is not faced by others. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear. But with the trial, also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. All right, you can endure it because you put your trust and faith in God. And by doing so, in the power of the Spirit, he carries you through that temptation. There is, you are not an exception to the rule. When we do fail, because it's going to happen... It has happened. It will happen. Hopefully it is less and less as we continue to be sanctified by the Spirit. Let us confess. Let us repent. 
carry on striving for obedience in all things because we love him and we don't want to be like the hypocrites of Israel. See, the hypocrites won't strive for this. They won't even care. They'll just come back to Sunday and be like, it's all good. I don't need to worry about it. But let us go to Christ at any moment, not just on Sundays, but any moment. Because as Hebrews 4.14 through 16 says, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace, receive mercy, and find grace whenever we need help. In that moment of temptation, when the world wants you to do something, when your flesh is saying, but it feels so good, this is what I want, this is what I need, it's, it's, it, the release will be immediate, go to Jesus. The throne room has an open door policy. If, if you lack wisdom, James tells us, go to God. He will give it to you generously without rebuke. You can go to him because the blood of Christ allows you to enter into that room. And we could do so with confidence. And it's only there that you will receive the grace and mercy to deliver you from that moment of temptation or when the world is persecuting you or rejecting you or, or criticizing you because of what you believe. But in the times when we do fail, when we do trip and stumble, Again, let's go to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that last part. Right? We all like the forgiveness of sins part. Right? That's good. But he's also, he's going to clean us of that. He's going to sanctify us. He is going to help us be more obedient. There will be fruit in our lives that show that we are walking in faith. This is good news because it is not about faithful obedience to the church, to the building, to these, to these ministries. It's not even about faithful obedience to the sacraments or any works of the church. It's strictly about faithful obedience to the teachings of God, which all those things can be a part of if they're grounded in the truth of who Jesus is and him crucified. This is good news. The work is all on him he just desires our hearts every day of the week every week of the year and every month for as long as we live so let us strive to live in this way that gospel fruit is 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 known it's seen that when people when they see us walk through these doors we're like a fig tree like huh you know I, i can see the green leaves and then they come into your life they come into your homes and they see fruit that's supposed to be there. They see the fruit of somebody who's regenerated, somebody who knows Jesus Christ, because you're not just putting on a show. You're just not caring about an impressive building, but you're caring more about where you stand before God the Father than you are before society. And as such, allow that fruit to fall off. Allow people to pick at the low-hanging fruit, taste it, smell it, to know the glory of the gospel, the joys of the gospel. And allow this to pour over into this building as we go forward. Allow our day-to-day activities to help shape, form the ministries, the services, the, the, the light that we're able to provide to West Salem. It's not because of this building, it's because of how you and I live day-to-day in God's word, walking in obedience to his spirit. That's what's going to shape Hope Community Church and how we use this building and the time that's before us that God wants us to use for him. And all of this, of course, 
we seek to do it for his glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace, and I, I pray that the words here this morning will strike true in all of our hearts and souls that your spirit will use your word to convict um, and, and divide what's in us, Father, from the unholy and the holy and that we will strive after the holy. And, and that for those of us who your word might have stung a bit this morning, I ask that you bless us with your grace and mercy and that we can drink from that, trust in that. And you know that despite our, our past failings that Every moment is a new moment for us to continue to walk in your steps and that you have not abandoned us or left us uh, despite our unfaithfulness. You are always faithful to us. And we are grateful for that, Father. Knowing that our, our salvation, the eternal life that you've given us is eternally secured in the work of your Son. And help us live that out. Help us know this truth in such a way that when we leave church on Sunday, we're reminded of this good news that it will carry us through the week, that we will go to your work daily, make it a priority, and make your gospel a first importance in our lives and how we lead our families, engage our neighbors, engage our coworkers, do our business, um, how we go to school, just how we decide uh, life decisions, that your gospel is first and foremost before all things. Help us be a a church that can meet the, the needs of this community, Help us live daily lives um, that are just amplified by this building. And may we amplify the ministries of this building by what we do outside of this building. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.